today's story is about guilt and affairs and marriage and the wonderful French city of Grenoble. Maybe it's also about freedom and choice and even happiness. Must be getting soft. Snowbound. Grenoble is encircled by mountains, almost. The line from the Gare de Lyon in Paris curves its way in somehow as the Alps rise in tectonic magnificence. Talk about clear air, you think to yourself, ambling through the marketplace, randomly looking at samples of craft and tat. You love Grenoble now, this university city with its trams and its galleries, its stadiums and fondue restaurants, all cover for your infidelity. You wince at the word, it growls at you, an earworm of rebuke, even in the throes of passion. Yet, what passion? Sex, and afterwards, a glass or two of chartreuse, the stronger green variety, of course, heady, lust booze, and outside, the crystalline wonder of snowflakes. Ten billion of them fall on you in the old Bastille fort, as he tells you that he loves you, that he needs you in his life, that he wants to spend the rest of that life with you. A blizzard descends. It obliterates the view over the rooftops of old Grenoble, over the confluence of the Drac and the Isère, over the happy throngs of the Grenoblois, shopping and trading and hanging out in the twinkling bars and the pretty cafés. Garrison town, mercantile town, Gloves, hydro-electricity, winter sports, and most important of all for you, perhaps, Stendhal. For it is he, well, not really, just the university named after him, that provides you with a reason to be here, and with an opportunity for such sweet deception. You are lecturing, in bad French, on modern Irish drama, of all things, not because you are a qualified lecturer, but because you are a minor Irish playwright, with a few interesting things to say, you suppose, about the communal delights and the spectacular tantrums involved in making theatre. It's all a little nepotistic. Your best friend's friend runs the drama department here. Severine can clearly see that you are enjoying more than the intellectual stimulus of her faculty, but she is extraordinarily polite and kind. She has somehow primed the students to be equally generous with their attention and interest, and you are flattered, and your usually low artistic self-esteem is now brimming with pride. Gallic pride. This occasional breakout of creative reward in your life makes up for the day-job toil of social work your backup profession. When you haven't the confidence to say or believe that you're a writer, you can at least point to something else that you can live with, though the hours and the bureaucracy of it drag you down. Still, work is where you meet people, where you make friends, where sympathy and comfort are readily available. But really, what's he doing here? It seems he just came along for the journey and the joy of being with you. He too has taken annual leave and he hunts and forages in the grocery stores and the wine merchants to prepare your evening meals for when you return from the campus. You have been staying in a slightly run-down apart hotel, but tonight, for your last night together, he has booked you into the chateau, a five-star chunk of granite luxury at the edge of town. This 
is a magical, fabulous, life-affirming romp in alpine splendour. For that you are grateful. No, immensely grateful, because you have not been happy. Your belief in yourself as a person, as a sexual being, as a writer, was draining away. You found yourself apologising all the time, internalising the daily barrage of criticism delivered by your husband, believing that he was right, that you were indeed useless and stupid. And even when he wasn't directly accusing you of one sort of failure or another, even then the icy, acid silence did the work for him. So the guilt is not for him, not for the man he has become, anyway. The guilt is for the children aged 18 and 14. The guilt is for the man your husband used to be, the one you fell in love with, and possibly for the institution that you're wrecking, but don't want to wreck. And the guilt floats on the surface of your ecstasy, staining the innocence of the affair, tainting the childlike wonder of something amazing and new. Well, such is all infidelity, no doubt. The blend of excitement and regret, the inseparable tangle of shame and liberation. You didn't ask this man to fall for you, you just didn't actively discourage it. Work throws people together, two shredded egos that were spiralling down, now enjoying the infectious laughter of happy ascent. To what? You inhabit the present so greedily, so aggressively here, because, always at the edge of your vision, the catastrophe to come, as you constantly imagine it, and the absolute rejection of you by everyone you have known and loved. That's a certainty, isn't it? But you close your eyes and dream harder, and you finish your lecturing with a flourish, which you wrote in English and Severine translated for you to read aloud, giving you the brief illusion of being bilingual. And the students produce some mulled wine, and everyone gathers around, and you feel like a tipsy Socrates, and a warm, gurgling satisfaction effervesces away inside you. And then you remember that he is lurking in the shadows outside, waiting shyly, to escort you from the concrete cloisters of learning to the spa, swimming pool and billiard room of the chateau, not to mention the four-poster bed in which you will clasp him tightly. So, you go out to the freezing porch and fetch him inside, and neither of you explain anything, and everyone knows and no one cares. And you hug Severine, and you blow kisses to the students, and you hail a taxi, and you are delivered to the feudal grandeur of pre-revolutionary France. Almost. He doesn't patronise you. He just explains the rules. You make your bridge, you aim, you push the cue through thumb and index onto the white ball, which in turn hits the red straight into the pocket. And natural. Everything is natural. Unforced. Tender. Light. Snowfall drapes its hush across the universe. Your eyes open in the darkness. You listen to the soft breathing of your lover. You are naked and adored here in the depth of winter. But you just can't revel. First one child, then the other asks you why. Why have you ruined our lives? Why have you ripped up twenty years of marriage? Why have you disturbed the equanimity of habit? What you have done will leave scars, is scarring now, wounding the hearts and souls of those who are bound to you. Mother and wife, destroyer of worlds. 
What will you do? There is no good answer. You must stop this. You must tell him. Wake him up and tell him now. It's over. You can't betray any more. It will kill you. But in the morning, when cold, bright sunshine spills into the room, you make love again. You will tell him. You will end it. But not here. Not yet. Instead, you bifurcate. Your being splits in two. You coexist in different worlds. You are two different people. You will run from one to the other when the self-loathing overwhelms you. It's time to leave Grenoble. Take the train back to Paris and connect with the Eurostar. Grenoble, prefecture of Auvergne-Rhône-Alpes, capital of ardour, citadel of sin. Here you have paraded your dishonour and preened your deviance. Now you are deflating the pipe dream, coming down to earth and heading back to quotidian boredom. The train rattles you away, and by your side the man you love to touch, love to kiss and hold. With him you imagine yourself into impossible possibilities, knowing with the dead weight of dread that you are doomed. How do marriages fall apart? What leads from lifelong commitment to the agony of unravelling? How is it that we come to reveal the ugliest sides of our character? and resent our lot. You spit venom across the miles at your husband, sour, angry man that he is, permanently disappointed and irritated with you. But it is never explained, never explored, this withering of tenderness, this harsh fading out of friendship. All you share now is the joint anxiety of parenthood, but your boys cannot be insensible to the animosity that drenches your home. And in any event, they are reaching for their own independence. Perhaps they already know. Perhaps your husband already knows. The clacking of the wheels on the track lulls you back into happier reverie. You will make the day last forever, and in that way bypass all your dark portends. The snow is relentless. The train is slowing. Time is helping you. France is in whiteout. You come to a stop somewhere miles from Paris and miles from anywhere. This is the heart of a sleeping continent. You clutch his hand. You kiss his brow. You sip, what else, champagne from the bottle you bought at Grenoble Station. And for emergencies, or simply for later, the viscous pleasure of chartreuse awaits in your bag at 55% by volume. Outside the window, brilliant blue-black snow, a highway into forever, or maybe just oblivion. What if you both descended and disappeared into the piercing cold, a suicide pact of runaway lovers? It's tempting, but you're jolted awake by the announcement that the train will be late into Paris, and that means you will miss your connection, and that means spending the night in the capital and that means telling your husband, who will blame you, of course, for all inclement weather. He will also voice displeasure for having to do, just for one more day, those domestic things you always do without complaint, and you realise, perhaps for the first time, that you are afraid of him. Your lover is relishing a night in Paris, one more night with the woman he reveres. You don't want to dampen his fervour, but you are anxious. You can't delay. You make your call. And guess what? It turns out every bit as badly as you anticipated. 
do you understand, your husband rails, just how very inconvenient this is? Meekly, too meekly, you agree. You apologise, prostrate as usual in the court of disdain. Your other man, your better man, makes a call himself to the Hôtel Cyriel, which still in this day and age does not have a website and will entertain no booking by email. His stuttering French is enough to secure a room for the night, and he tells you all about this wonderful little hotel he discovered as a student, tucked away on the left bank, where a boudoir of red velvet decor with gold frame mirrors will welcome you with the brash flamboyance of the Belle Epoque. Hours later, you eventually collapse, having no choice, into sweet vermilion sheets in a scarlet and gilded room. Campus Christmas, gaudy as tinsel, but it wraps you both in permissive indifference. You have sex before you sleep, and then you sleep down to the bottom of the world. And when morning comes, lazily gliding in, the snow has caught up with you. Paris is a shimmering winter wonderland. Off to the Gare du Nord with you both to rebook on a train to Blighty. Sorted, but the train doesn't leave for another two hours. What to do but breakfast in Montmartre? You stride merrily along, hand in hand, snow on your boots, snow on your hair, snow on your face and your tongue. Kissing in the snow, laughing in the snow, you climb up the steps to the Sacre-Cœur and are drawn in by the a cappella singing of nuns and the spiced air of incense smoking in the frosted light. You listen. It is an otherworldly music, a blessing perhaps, or a warning. For all the consequences and all the guilt of pleasure, this is, after all, just love. You cannot legislate against love. He asks you again, over boiling coffee and the most delicious pain au raisin ever, to come and live with him, to make a bold decision, to follow your heart rather than your conscience. For what is your conscience but a crippling shackle on happiness? He persuades your heart. He persuades your mind. You look out of the window at your other self looking in, and as his romantic rhapsody soars, you are still the quintessence of indecision. Soon you are back on board the train, and the train is trundling through the snow-laden fields of northern France. The picturesque churches of Les Petits Villages point at a bleak grey sky. You have told him that he must give you more time to think, though you know that the process whereby this will all be resolved, or more likely endlessly deferred, is not really thought. Everyone in the train is your accuser. Everyone can read your mind, can see the dark duplicity of your life. What are you going to do? Those who love you, he says, will forgive. But your furious husband disagrees. The children don't want to talk about it and they don't want to take sides. Some of your friends are disappointed in you. Others congratulate you for striking out for freedom. But none of this has happened yet because you are still on the train, still stumbling through the maelstrom of yearning and denial. The train has picked up speed. You are running out of time. Hurt everyone in secret or hurt them openly. What if the fantasy fails? What if this isn't love and he grows tired of you, or you of him? You will have nothing then. No home, no future, no chance. Into the tunnel, back to broken Britain. What good has love ever done you? You loved your husband once. It faded. 
but there are other loves for your children, and that doesn't fade, can't fade. Nothing is certain, everything is a gamble, there is no right decision. So why not privilege desire? It's better, at least, than endless self-hatred. You and the world are both weary of your turmoil. London is being pulled towards you now. There it is, being dragged over the horizon. You toss the coin in your brain. You smile. It's double-headed. Come on. You've always known. He looks at you. The train eases into St Pancras International. And there you are, waiting to greet yourself. You step inside her. A perfect fit. Now, go and heal. Thank you.